Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast, where we navigate our political and cultural divides with a chaser of civility. We invite you to grab your favorite beverage and join us as we explore our differences and build bridges across our divisions. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast. I do not have a co-host on this podcast, and I'm so excited, though, to speak with James Joyce III of Coffee with a Black Guy. And so I don't even have to ask what we're drinking because it's coffee. Uh, Yep. So I have to tell you, though, James, I actually grew up, well, I grew up all over the world. My father was Air Force, but my family has a home in Newport Beach, not far from you. So when I'm drinking something like non-alcoholic, I try to pick a mug that goes at least as close to where my guest is. So I've got my Orange County Starbucks mug. It's not exactly, you know, where you are at, but close enough, right? Close, close enough. We'll, we'll, we'll embrace them all. <laughs> so I've been, I've heard about you and Coffee with a Black Guy for a while. And I, I'm, I've, I've been excited. And then, I, you know, things got crazy, pandemic type of stuff. And of course, those, you know, things that kind of drop off. I want to, I want to know all about you. And then I want to tell you how I kind of got to know about what you're doing. And yeah, we'll just go from there. But tell me first, who is James Joyce the third? And let me just tell you, I love the name, your name, because my son's name, Finnegan, is from Finnegan's Wake, James Joyce's book, Finnegan's Wake. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. So already there's like some connection there, but I love that. Okay. Who is James Joyce the third? That's awesome. Well, Jen, <laughs> thank you so much for, for, for having me. First of all, I, I love what you're doing with this and it, it's right in alignment with, with what, what I've been doing with Coffee with the Black Guy, like really trying to just bridge the divide, get over the BS and really just build neighbors, build community. Right. Yeah. Um, me, myself, I, I was born and raised on the East Coast, uh, a, a little town in Westminster, Maryland, um, right outside of Baltimore. It's in the Baltimore, D.C. metro area, uh, about 20 minutes from downtown uh, Baltimore, uh, about, you know, maybe 40, 45 minutes from D.C. Um, predominantly white community, fairly conservative and understand that Mason, uh, Maryland is a Mason Dixon state. So it's mm-hmm. technically still the South. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's got an interesting history and legacy that I, I you know, born and raised in, right? A uh, good place to be from, went to school in Ohio University, uh, got a journalism degree, um, had a ball down in Athens, Ohio, um, ran track down there, got very involved on campus and really catapulted me into a career of journalism. Um, I started as a daily newspaper reporter um, in Marion, Indiana uh, for a Gannett pay- owned paper. And, and if you know anything about that, that's where you go and you, you get your reps in. Um, okay. You get you get good at the craft. And so I went there and I could only last about two years because <laughs> I, I actually went back and looked the other day. And I, I had in the two, it was like day to day, two years, um, I had 720 bylines. When you talk about getting reps in and really learning like what the craft yeah. stuff is. So I lasted there two years and then really went out into the Pacific Northwest in Yakima, Washington, reporting out there, covering education. Um, and so as a reporter, when you're going to these various communities, you're really having to like learn keen observation skills. 
right? Where you're like parachuting into a city and you have to tell the good, bad, and ugly to the people who were born and raised there in an authentic way on day one, right? right? Like right. that's a challenge. And, right. and there's a steep learning curve to do that. But at the same time, that is a great skill to hone in on. Uh, fast forward, uh, got out of Yakima after a little more than four years, went back, went to Toledo, Ohio in 08. Uh, that was right around the Obama presidential election, mm -hmm. right? Um, I was in Toledo. If you recall that election, there was a guy named Joe the Plumber. Uh, Joe the Plumber yes. was about a mile down the street uh, from where I live, right? And so we were right in the heart of, of that and excitement. Um, and I started covering some political stuff because, of course, we were in the, in, you know, the territory. Um, and that was like my first time canvass, like canvassing neighborhoods and all that kind of stuff. Fast forward after the election, get laid off, end up moving out to California. Um, long story short, end up getting, uh, uh, working for um, a guy who was a city councilman in Santa Barbara, but running for the state assembly seat. Um, and he needed somebody to work for his campaign. I was living in Ventura County, a little closer to Orange County, uh, but, but I was living in Ventura County at that time. And he needed somebody to work his campaign down there. I ended up getting that job. And, you know, that's when I first started actually doing politics and doing the political thing, um, working for a state assembly member, then getting recruited away by the state senator, working for her for all eight years, uh, Hannah Beth Jackson. Um, she an awesome, awesome legislator, probably the, one of the, the, the best and most effective state legislators in our country, uh, created the Equal Rights Bill, uh, women, uh, equal, equal pay um, for women. That was the first one in the nation, and then it got replicated in states elsewhere and now nationally. Um, women on corporate boards, she did that bill. Uh, yes means yes for uh, um, uh, affirmative consent on for sexual assault on campuses. Like these are a lot of like weighty bills yeah. that are are really kind of um, leading in the in 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 the forefront of equity issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, kind of being in that mix, she had a project that was talking about entrepreneurship, and then hatched Coffee with the Black Guy in 2016, right? When it was on the heels of uh, uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and you know, I had already, I think I, I'd already known about Coffee with a Cop. Um, I, I have a fraternity brother who uh, at the time was assistant city administrator down in the city of Hawthorne. And he, we were talking one day and he was telling me that, yeah, oh yeah, well, we started Coffee with a Cop. Like, man, whatever. Like, and I, like that challenge, I was just like, man, you're trying to claim everything. <laughs> and then I did my research and I was like, oh, snap. Well, Coffee with a Cop started in Hawthorne, California. And when I was doing my research, I'm like, they started what what was coffee with what is coffee with a cop based on the fact that they wanted to humanize the badge and be seen yeah. beyond their uniform. Yeah. And there was something that resonated with it. I was like, well, shit, I want to be seen beyond my uniform, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Like mm -hmm. th this is what I, I can't take this off. Right. And so coffee with the black guys like we should just have coffee with the black guy and and I kind of hatched and incubated the idea and then Philando or, uh, yeah Philando Castile and Alton Sterling and I saw people who I was normally interacting with I was the district director for the state senator so I'm in these rooms interacting with people uh, kind of you know known in town mm -hmm. and people are no longer having those conversations they're no longer actually even looking me in my eye because that's what's dominating the headline. And I'm like, this is very inauthentic. Uh, we can do better. And so then I just kind of 
said, all right, well, I'm going to have coffee with a black guy, posted it on social media. Uh, people responded heavily on social media. Um, and so I thought that that wasn't going to be enough space at the coffee shop. And so there was a, a co-working space in town that I had been working with. Uh, the, it was called Impact Hub at the time. Um, and they agreed to host me. And for the first two, three years of Coffee with the Black Guy, pretty much every session was at one of their, their locations, which they would host, um, donate the coffee, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was really just about bringing folks in, facilitating conversation, and, and you know, just being real and, and building yeah. community and, and getting to know various perspectives. Because, you know, I think that's the value in, 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 this whole thing. It's just the perspective. It's not about trying to convince anybody or try mm -hmm. to, you know, wash, wash folks into this anti-racist wave, but it's about, you know, really making genuine connections and, and, and really being a, give, having an opportunity to ask the question, to ask the tough questions that you may not otherwise get a chance to ask. You know, I, I want to tell our. I, oh, I, I really, I really dove in there. I'm sorry. You told oh, me no. about it. I just told no. the whole I, That's exactly where I wanted you to go so i and i'm sorry i was looking down at my notes so if i interrupted you i wasn't looking <laughs> but I, I wanted to say um that's one of the things that's so attractive about that is you know for our audience you, i knew of you before this event but i was reminded of the work that you were doing because you and i joined i work with irshad manji in the moral courage college and you were a part of an event that she did an online event that she did with cal balvin and i saw your name again i'm not and then it was like wow but what you just said rings so true to everything that's important to me because it's all about the engaging versus assumptions you know, and so when we don't engage, we are left to our assumptions and that is often negative. But you said something that I wanted to touch on because this is how I kind of got into this questioning and particularly questions around race is you said that, you know, after the uh, incidents that you mentioned and the violence that you mentioned there, people became inauthentic. And this is what I do with Irshad Manji and the work that we do with moral courage. But I think that it's because of the way we have done some of the anti-racism work, some of the diversity of work that we've done, and this is what Ursha is trying to do to change it, is it comes from a place of judgment and shaming and blaming. And so people just end up closing down instead of having the honest conversation. And there is some guilt in there, I'm sure, is, you know, and some of it, you know, legit, but then there's also that, you know, you, you, you don't, bridge divides by silencing your people and so i mean that's what i'm hearing that was your mo right or that was your reason for yeah i mean and and, and I'll, you know i'll point out um you know ibram ibram x candy in his uh, how to be an anti-racist book because of his bout with cancer he made the great parallel that I, I had been using for years and when i read it i was like that's the perfect vehicle to carry that right is that you know, racism is like a cancer in our country. And until we really get down to the root of it and address it and get it out, then mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're not going to move forward. And, and for me, ultimately, like, yeah, we can have the conversations, but ultimately those conversations are going to have to lead to an action. And, and, you know, right here in the state of California, we're on the forefront, again, uh, uh, of taking some of those actions in really having serious conversations about reparations. Right. And, and getting to the root of, OK, let's look at the harm of 
slavery that created the economic foundation of our country um, and the series of systems that were put in place since then. And I, I've, I've heard folks say pretty much slavery had lasted up until about 1975. Um, so because of, of you know, the implications of Jim Crow being a vestiture of, 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 of slavery within itself. And so you know, looking at the impact of, of social, economic, um, all, all the impacts on a rate with looking at that through a racial lens, mm -hmm. like you, th there's an argument. And, and there's a conversation that seriously needs to be had because there's a lot of harm that's been done. And if we are looking at, you know, uh, our quote unquote uh, uh, criminal, criminal justice system uh, and that criminal twice was intentional, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, when we look at what happens with incarceration, it's supposed to be uh, um, the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, right? Mm -hmm. But that, that we know that that doesn't happen, but that's supposed to be the mindset. Uh, mm -hmm. On the front end, we look at the whole idea of, of restitution for a wrong that's done. So all of these things are already embedded within the systems that we set on, but we fail to, to, to apply that when it comes to the original harm and the original sin that built that whole thing, right? And so I, I think that, that looking at it as a cancer, you can't just look away from a cancer because, um, well, it's going to metastasize, right? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and we've seen that and we continue to see that in in many ways um and there there's and you know all the conversations are good but again they need to lead to action yeah for for sure and a lot of it just stops at at the twitter feed right i mean there's there's that um yeah I, for for now for now but well not with us that's what well, that's why i wanted to talk with you and i there's something you you mentioned something that i want to address because this is a conversation I'd love to have. And I don't know that uh, from the way you just explained it, that we're on the same page, but so I, so I want to hear more, but I'll give you a little background before I ask my question. So I attended the city of Austin's DEI training and it was not what I expected. I expected it to be something like this, where I got to listen to voices that weren't my own, listen to histories that weren't my own, generate that empathy, generate that understanding. And it really became what I mentioned earlier, a shame and blame game. Um, you know, we had to sit down and I actually wrote an article on it. We had to sit down and map out white traits, which that, this was a couple of years ago. I, I, I was just confusing to me. And the facilitator said, they're not, this is neutral, it's not good or bad. But I was sitting around a table with people who were like saying all these things, violent, you know, um, rapists. Um, and I was like, um, that's not neutral to me. <laughs> you know, and you know, I, I think that, sure, I, but I think that that applies to anyone. And so it really became, it was very, it wasn't, I'm okay with discomfort. I just thought that it wasn't the right way. To, it wasn't a conversation. It was, you know, I just felt like I was sitting in a chair and it was like this, this, this. And I was like, well, I didn't, I left from it not feeling like I gained any um, understanding or knowledge. And when I did ask, because I was the one who was always asking questions, I, I'll never forget this. Oh gosh, James, it really pissed me off. I asked, I was asking a lot of questions because I was curious. That's why I went to the event. Engagement. And, Yes, and no one was engaging. It was, again, it was talking at, talking to. And I remember I asked a question and this young um, white woman, and I don't you like to 
I don't like to categorize people, but you know, for the sake of this discussion, um, she sat there and she furiously wrote notes and she sent me, she, she passed over quietly a note and it was this list of books. And she goes, black people are tired of talking to white people. You need to do your work. And I was like, cause I had been, you know, I had been reading my stuff. The reason I was there was I was doing my work. Right. And so I felt that I, to get a real experience, I mean, I can read the books, but if I'm not having that real experience, if I'm not reading, listening to your story, how am I, then I'm not, I'm doing the work. And it made it so the fact that you're out there, even if we don't always agree on things, which I'll get back to what I think we might disagree on. I just, it made, it made me, that was a very frustrating experience for me because there was no engagement. There was all assumption. Right. Well, I mean, that, that's a beautiful story. And everything that you hit on it is, is exactly why Coffee with the Black Guy has kind of grown into what it is as a business, right? Is yeah. that, you know, I, I, that's the pitch I give is that like, you can read the books, you can, you know, watch the documentaries, you can have the implicit bias training where people lecture you. But co what Coffee with the Black Guy offers is an opportunity to unpack all of that where the rubber meets the road. How do you apply that to your life? Right, and really stop thinking of these DEI things, performative things as kind of one-off, but really infusing them in a lifestyle, like a religion. And just like a religion, every week you go back to the house of temple to be able to kind of rejuvenate for the work that you're supposed to do throughout the rest of the week. And so that's why these kind of conversations are important, right? And so like, like, you're absolutely right. And I'll say that the woman who, who, who said that to you, she's right too, right? based on what she saw just a snapshot of of she came she drew an assumption because there was no engagement and then she delivered a, a message that I agree with like right there's a lot of people out there that need to do their own work but then they also need an opportunity to unpack that work and that's mm -hmm. where the void was for you is that you just didn't have an opportunity to undo to 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 like it, it, it didn't meet your expectations right yeah. and, and 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 I think that a lot of times you know institutions they're afraid to go and address the real uncomfortable stuff in an authentic way um, they don't know how to address it. Um, um, they don't know how to lean into that uncomfortable and you know the reality of it is you you kind of heard my trajectory across the country right mm -hmm. I, i've lived in areas that i stand out right mm -hmm. i'm there's areas in those communities where i could go and have comfort and all that kind of stuff but I've had to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable, right? And so that's why I, I, I feel like, you know, this is not only just a business, this is a passion project for me because I feel aligned with purpose in saying that, okay, I've experienced a lot of BS. Like I've seen Klansmen eye to eye as a kid in their little teepee hats and was like, I didn't know what they were, right? And, right. and so that's been a lived experience. And to, to see the fear on my mom and my grandmom's face and how they had to pull off on the side of the road after that encounter happened and like regroup and mm -hmm. explain to me that these men are bad men uh, in those uniforms. Um, you know, I, I call them costumes, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you look like clowns. Um, so, you know. Um, and they are. <laughs> you know, but anyways. But at the, <laughs> But but at the same time, and I was like I was I was at a young a young kid, and to kind of fill in the back end of that story, I, we were at a red light, 
And uh, this was in like Manchester, Maryland. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, on the way to Baltimore County. And um, there, there's, you know, these men in these teepees. I may, I don't know. I may have been early 12, 13, maybe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and th these men in the, the, the teepee hats um, were standing at the red light, like holding signs. I don't know what the signs said, but they were just kind of waving at the crowd. And I looked the dude in the eyes and like we connected eyes and I waved and he waved back. And it was like, it was a human connection. And like, that's what I was connected on. And then I felt the vibe in the car and my mom and grandma and everybody's just looking straight forward and just like, you know, quiet and tense, waiting for the light to change. And as soon as the light changes, my mom doesn't even speed away. She just slowly hits the gas and pulls away. And we get down the road a little bit and then she's, Boy, don't you ever put your hand down. Like, don't. Like, and I'm like, what's going on? And then she fills me in on the back door. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, you know, they're bad men, I guess. Okay. Um, but you can't deny that, that like, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who, who doesn't, <laughs> what adolescent male doesn't come up thinking that he's made a connection with somebody based on eye, eye contact? right mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. at the same time that that was a real human connection of like right. there was no direct hate that happened in that exchange i that i felt you know what i mean so um to me that that like there's areas of opportunities and then, and then i learned i can't recall the gentleman's name but he's known as like the clan converter uh the guy the, the black gentleman yes daryl Daryl, yes. Yes, and I forgot the last name. It starts with a D. Yes. Uh huh. I, you know, learning his story and the work that he's doing, I'm like, you know, that aligned, you know, with with like, yeah, somebody's got to do that. Not everybody agrees with, you know, sitting down and giving folks of diverse backgrounds, including white folks, an opportunity to ask questions and pick and probe and be subject and subject myself to microaggressions and all that kind of stuff. Like, I I, I know that that's not for everyone, but somebody's got to do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right because if, if somebody doesn't do that and we get to the end of this whole conversation with the action of reparation and then nobody's been having those conversations there's going to be a, a a bigger bigger divide in the lack of understanding um there's not going to be there, there's not going to be any buy-in and there's going to be resentment um and you know i at, at, at this point, I, I think we're heading that way uh, yeah. as far as far as reparations. When I first started Coffee with the Black Guy, I did not think that reparations were going to be like I started Coffee with the Black Guy because I thought that reparations are never going to happen. Like this is like America is never going to do that. But in, in, you know, in place of reparations, what America has done is they, they've laid out these business structures that can allow you to create a vehicle for generational wealth. And essentially that's that's the, like the purpose of reparations is to, to equal out generational wealth. Um, and, and so I started this as a, as a business as opposed to, as opposed to a nonprofit because of that concept, you know, behind that, that, that concept of, of, you know, building something that is, is, is of value. I'm not saying that nonprofits aren't, but people, yeah. people cognitively value things differently in a business transaction than with a nonprofit. 
That's interesting. Now, okay, let's, let's reparations was what I was gonna to talk to you about. I need to give a little more context, but um, the context is, I'll try to be brief. After that event that I told you about, I wrote an article saying that I thought that we were doing this wrong. I care so much about getting this right. And I thought that we, that from this event that I went to, I thought we were doing it wrong. And a, I got a reply, it was in Ariel Magazine and a black attorney from San Diego wrote me and we started writing each other back and forth, back and forth, really long in-depth letters. And by the way, that book now, it's now a book that'll be published. It's coming out in October. It's called awesome. Letters in Black and White. Um, but here's the deal. So we started talking and he, he, one of our chapters and one of our discussions throughout is reparations. And so I'm, you know, as I'm trying to work through what I feel, because of course, you know, you can't deny history. At the same time, I grew up in a place where, you know, I just, in the military, we, there's not the same, what's the word I want to use? There's not the same segregation as there is, you know, maybe out in the public. So it, you know, it's all new to me. So I'm struggling with this stuff. So we're having this conversation again, it will, it's part of the book. And he has, he is absolutely just disgusted with the idea of reparations because he's like, how can you put a price on a life? The other thing that's important to him is what we haven't done in this discussion around race in America. And again, this is something that we talk about is there's so much black resiliency, black strength, black, you know, so our part two of our book is this, these unsung heroes, right? People who were like making the money, who are making, you know, and they, who built like Black Wall Street, which I know, you know, Black Wall Street also was destroyed, but, you know, made their fortunes and, and these just Black communities that were so awesome. And his deal, you know, his letters to me were what he is disappointed in is the way that we talk about race now creates this, this sense where um, blackness is oppression, nothing else matters. And if that is how we are teaching our young black children that the system is always rigged, it'll never change, system, 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 you might as well just accept it and fight, you know, fight the power. He's like, we're, then we're, we're, we're losing the, the battle. So that's basically the premise of the book. So um, reparations, I mean, what do you think about his take on reparations that, you know, you can't put a life on, you can't put a price tag on a life. I agree with that statement, um, but that's not what reparations is. It's not putting okay. a price tag on a life. It, it's, Tell me more. It's, 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 it's about it, the labor, mm -hmm. the, the free labor, mm -hmm. uh, the systems of oppression that have continued to um, deny the ability to build generational wealth, right? So you just talk about Black Wall Street. I'm glad somebody is focusing on the positive of that, right? All we hear about that is the destruction, the destruction, the destruction. But I want to know more about why they wanted to destroy it, right? Like why, what, you know, how did that happen to become such a threat that it had to be burnt down, according to the people who did, right? So, so I think that's a valuable area to, to be in. But, um, you know, I, it's really about building that generation more wealth. Like, okay, so look at a family who owned enslaved people and then the people who were enslaved, the family of those who were enslaved. And you look at the opportunities that were afforded to individuals who were enslaved 
after emancipation. And then you saw, you know, what was that? The uh, Reconstruction era. Um, mm-hmm. You saw Black political participation, Black business, Black ownership. Mm-hmm. And then that became a threat and got burned down. And then systems were put in place to keep that from happening again, right? And so it's not so much a life because there's no way to put a value on that. Like, I mean, you, you can't, like, what about all of those lives that were lost in capturing people on the on the mother continent then trans all the lives lost in transport during the middle passage right and then all the things culturally genetically um historically uh, uh um that were stamped out and killed during that process right and then what you talk about is the resiliency is what's left, right? What 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 was able to prevail? What stuck around? What it would able? What 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 saw through all of that? And you know, I don't want to get into a conversation on eugenics, but like that's it's like well, geez, there's they're, they're dominating sports, uh, you, kind of by design. Right, you you wanted the biggest and, and, and best to, mm. to do that work that was for free, right? And so when you look at like cotton as a commodity, all the work that went into that, and the reason that it was able to trade and at at the rates that it was, and people were able to build wealth for their families was because of free labor that was on the backs of other people. And so it it's not about you know. Of the value of a life it's a it's a value of that whole thing and and you can't you can't fit that in 140 characters on twitter right so that's why the conversation's got to happen right right well you know and 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 i don't disagree with you here's what i'm struggling with though so i don't have a lot of numbers you know in front of me but most people outside of some of the big you know the, the rockefellers like the you know crazy wealthy ridiculously wealthy people i mean Generational wealth usually doesn't pass down past three generations on average is, is the number that I've heard. So, you know, you look at like the South where after, you know, the or during reconstruction, you know, there was a lot of, and th- I am not like giving a pass or thing, but I just don't know that there was that much wealth that was built up. I think there was a lot of wealth destroyed in slave states on both on the white side as well. And so I'm just wondering if, the generational wealth, and I think that we should be doing things to, to equalize, but I'm just not sure that that argument is, I don't know that even if things, if we didn't have the Jim Crow, whether or not that would necessarily have changed and be a, a case for reparations. I'm not, I'm, tell me more, convince me more. 1619 Project, um, uh, uh, the warmth of our sons, uh, or 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Warmth mm-hmm. of Our Sons, Isabel Wilkerson, and cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Yep. Case one, two, and three for reparations. And if you need a primer to that, ta Coates, he wrote an article for the Atlantic in, in uh, uh, 2014, uh, making a case for reparations. Mm-hmm. Yep, right. it, all the work has been done. Um, you know, I don't need to re, re, recreate that 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 argument per se because they they do a great job of that in there and laying out the historical linkage to the 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 economic divide. Um, the you know, and and again, when I say it's not just about 
the generational wealth from slavery, looking at, you know, okay, so then after that, what about redlining, right? Where, where, where Blacks could only buy in certain lower valued mm -hmm. neighborhoods, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't invest, even if they could afford to, right? Because some had military money, right? Because of that, if they couldn't, they could afford to invest in other parts of the, the city, but they weren't allowed to because of redlining, right? And that was an intentional thing. And mm -hmm. it's still happening in some places, you know, mm -hmm. racial covenants and various other things. But, you know, you, you, it, it, it's very tough to, to for me, it's very tough to make an argument that stands that says that there's not an economic divide that falls fairly clearly uh, along the race line. Yeah, well, let me, let, okay, on that note, let me ask you another question that touches on that. Would you say, and, and you're right, I mean, this, the, 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 that's just a fact, right? I mean, <laughs> there's no denying that fact. Would you say, though, could, can you, this is a question that we talk about a lot. Some people will boil it all down to systems. Would you say that it's our, our all about systems or would you say that there's more than it's not always about systems are, are one reason but then there's other factors as well what do you would you say about that yes and yes <laughs> Urshad Manji <laughs> or she's like both and <laughs> right be, be, I think it, it, it's systems but then what makes up systems people mm -hmm. and the people's biases influence yes. the policies that systems put out right mm -hmm. and so when, when the work that we're doing is changing those people who make up the system, right? Broadening the perspective of the individuals who make up the system and then you change enough of those and then the system starts to change. It, mm -hmm. it's, it's incremental change, right? It's not gonna be radical change, but you know, that's kind of how this, this uh, uh, democratic experiment has been set up. It's not set up for radical change, it's set up for incremental change. And so, um, you know, I think tamping our expectations of that are, are, are you know, would, would do us well. Um, but at the same time, like, you heard, like, I started off with, like, I didn't think reparations would be even a reality in 2016. And here we are, you know, five plus years later, and I'm coming, to, I came to the conclusion, like, well, this is probably going to happen. Like, and, you know, there's, you know, the ball is rolling, right? And, you know, when I say that, I'm looking at, you know, California, the first uh, country or the first state in the nation to um, uh, uh, have a task force, a, le a legislative task force to to study reparations. And just uh, today's Thursday, yeah, just yesterday, uh, they 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 voted to like what that would look like, right? Or not what that who would be eligible. So, uh, you know, uh, communities of eligibility had been the conversation for the past two months exclusively in these task force meetings. The task force was created by the legislature, signed by the governor, uh, to be able to put a, present a report to the legislature by January or July 1st, 2023, on what reparations would look like, right? Uh, there's been um, kind of similar, but has been watered down, but similar legislation at the federal level that's been introduced since 1986-ish um, called HR 40 um, that could do the same thing at the federal level um, mm -hmm. where the conversation should be happening. California shouldn't be bearing the weight of figuring this out for the whole nation yet. Here we are. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I think that looking at how things happen 
legislatively, as you heard me kind of point out earlier, the, the work I did for Senator Jackson yeah. and seeing how that is kind of model legislation. I, I think it does make sense for California kind of to work some things out. California tends to be a legislative Petri dish. We figure it out, economy of scale, close to 40, 40 million people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the rest of the country can, can utilize and adapt to as it fits, you know, in various regions. But right. um, we won't, I mean, we won't know until we have that conversation seriously. And the commission uh, that would be formed under HR 40 and the task force that, it, that that's been meeting and, and doing, doing, doing the deep work in really vetting these issues and, and having experts do testimony. And, um, you know, one of the previous Coffee with the Black Guy conversations I had in February was on reparations, reparations 101. Um, and we had the chair of the California task force join us for that conversation, in addition to um, uh, someone from uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, who's in charge of their uh, um, US programs. And so um, really dissecting it in a community conversation way. And, and, you know, again, like you said, a lecture can be off-putting. Yeah, we called it Reparations 101, a community conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so um, it's still just, you know, just having coffee, having a conversation, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, you know, coffee, connection, connection conversation. conversation. And you know what my tagline is, um, searching for context through correspondence and conversation. So yeah, Con connection, context. I mean, that's, that's what matters. Um, so, okay, I've got on that now, I'll just keep asking because I'm, I'm very curious. So let me ask you like, Two, I've got two questions still on the reparations side. Sure. What in your mind, and I know you're only one person, I know you, we've got to come together as a community to make it work, but what in your mind do you think the majority of the Black community would say, yep, yeah, if, if that's how things were done, we would feel we'd feel that there was justice. Is there, is there, I mean, again, I know you're, you cannot speak for everyone. You can only speak for yourself, but what do you think would be like kind of a baseline that people would go, yeah, that's, we'd get on board with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, a, a baseline is stop fighting critical race theory or whatever they want to call it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a, you know, misnamed thing, but you know, reparations isn't just about the check. The check is critical to that. And mm -hmm. then when I say the check, I'm looking at, you know, it can be come in a variety of forms, you know, um, you know a, a down payment on a house, free education, universal health care, whatever. But that that financial element needs to be key and paramount to reparations, but also you need a parallel track of education and bringing people along. And you need you really need to have that um, understanding. Right. And, and, and it's, you know, not new model. Right. You know, look at mm -hmm. look at how Germany has made monument of the Holocaust and made sure that they're never going to forget. They teach it. Uh, they don't ban it from being taught in schools, right? They, they, they address it, understand it. And so, okay, so that's what's not going to happen again, right? And you look at racial reconciliation process that happened, uh, at, you know, um, in South Africa with apartheid and, 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 and the anti-apartheid movement and, and how restorative community efforts were paramount to making sure that that moved forward. Uh, same, same, same idea and same situation. I think that the, my understanding, or at least the people that I speak to, and I know again, there's a diversity out there. Those who have a problem with critical race theory, it's not, 
the problem with teaching history, it goes back to what we were talking about, the way it's the way the the kind of the shaming and blaming and the there's a sense that we're resegregating by people putting people in in back in boxes, black, white, Hispanic. And so we're just playing the same game as before and reversing roles. And so I think that at least, and that's how I would feel. I, I don't feel that it's, um, I don't have a problem with the theory and in, in so many ways, I mean, it, it's, there are, it's true. It's true. I mean, there, there are, this is where I think critical race theory gets some things right. I mean, you look at the way we did desegregation, right? And we put it on the, and this goes to the question of systems. They put it on the books, but what ended up happening was because they were busing all the black children more to white neighborhoods, black teachers lost their jobs. You know, and if people would have realized and actually had that relationship and said, oh, and actually realized what would happen on the ground interpersonally, instead of just coming down from the top down and going, this is how we're going to do it. And this what this is an example of a system, right? Um, and so really the they they made a, a a legal change without a heart change. And so stuff like that, I, I do agree with. Um, but that 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 ties back the reason okay so so what you just point about all like a lot of black educators losing their jobs mm-hmm. um well then look at our current teaching core and the folks that we're supposedly tasking with teaching quote unquote critical race theory i'll get to that in a second because we it's a, it's a mis you know misnaming it yeah, critical race theory i think that is, might be it mm-hmm. is 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 ivory tower stuff what yeah. they're talking is about is just historical accuracy mm-hmm. um and i and, i mean it's just convenient to call it critical race theory, but when you have a teaching core that's ill-equipped to teach that content, then of course you're going to be against it. If you had a, a, like, if you had teachers who were teaching algebra, who didn't know any, like, couldn't, didn't have any numerical recognition whatsoever, then you'd probably have a problem with the content coming out of that class. Right. And so, like, I don't think the problem is so much with the content. It's about the the carrier of that content. And so what's that mean? Beat the drum about diversifying our education core. Right. Getting more teachers who like all of these TikTok creators who are creating all this awesome content, get in the damn classroom. Right. And and what would happen if the National Education Association or whatever the teachers association came out with an MOU with TikTok creators who wanted to get into the line of education because most schools prohibit you from identifying your school and doing all that kind of stuff, social media activity on, but creating some sort of MOU waiver where TikTok creators not only are in the classrooms, but they can still create content and then create something different in getting that information out. Now, you know, of course, there's got to be a vetting process and certifications and all that. Not every TikTok creator is created equal. Um, you know, some, <laughs> those who have to do, you know, their research and be, you know, anchored in, in truth. But, um, you know, thinking innovatively is is American as, as American pie. And mm-hmm. so we need to stop shying away from that and lean into that innovation and figure this shit out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think with returns to critical race theory, I think we should just say, I mean, that we just need to teach history. You know, that's I, I that you you talked about terms, and I think that that's where people get, you know, 
get mixed up is, I mean, to me, I think, why don't we just say history? Let's just teach history, you know? Histor Here's an example of historical accuracy. So when, when youth are taught about George Washington being the founding father of our country, right? They're taught that, you know, this whole myth about chopping down a cherry tree and, and you know, signing this mm -hmm. and doing all of that. But the part that's left out is that both he and his wife owned slaves mm -hmm. and the whole denture situation about, you know, at the time, mm -hmm. dentures were made out of other people's teeth and right. people right. were property at that time. So George Washington had enslaved people's teeth in his mouth as dentures. Now, what's wrong with telling that whole story? Right, the whole arc of who that character is, and more. Mm -hmm. Right, that's more accurate than just the myth. Right, um, and and you know that kind of goes against cancel culture. Right, you can't be judged by your worst deed uh, in in that same idea and philosophy. And so, like, we got to have some understanding and some some grace. But like, when you really look at like you know, because of this whole Will Smith, Chris Rock thing, there was a Chris mm. Rock interview that he did back in January with Neil Brennan. And I went back and watched that the other day. And oh my gosh, like, you know, Chris, yeah, yeah these guys are entertainers, but like they're smart individuals. They're, they're researched in, in individuals. Um, and so like, he's, he's talking about his family's relationship with racism and how they, why his family moved from South Carolina to New York because of some racial violence that may or may not have happened in South Carolina, but racial violence was the norm, right? People went missing, right? That was a, like, there was a lot of dark things that happened and continue to happen that we have not and do not address. And so if we want to tell this whole story, we can't just paint the positive picture, right? Like, you you know, this whole push, everybody is, is talking about therapy and healing their trauma now. America needs to heal its trauma, address the trauma that has happened. All of those lynching photos that used to be passed around as postcards, mm -hmm. like, yeah, there was one Black body hanging from the tree, but there were hundreds of white eyes watching that. And that were captured in that photo. That's a traumatic experience to witness and normalize and to pass around as a postcard. And so when you look at violence in America, there's a lot of trauma that's rooted in America that needs to be healed. So on that note, would you also then say, I mean, and I don't disagree with you, but when we talk about honest history, I mean, that would be, I mean, honest against both the good and the bad both black, white, and all colors. So, I mean, if we're going to go there, then we can talk about, you know, honest history, good, bad, and ugly for, you know, um, black history, good, bad, and ugly for white history. I think that we still, I mean, I do believe, I personally believe our founding fathers, the ideas that they had, I still think are worth preserving. How they did it, different story. Right. And so I, I, I have no problem teaching honest history. Here's where I, though, have a problem. And I don't believe in literally and figuratively whitewashing history. But where we're teaching, if, if everything is taught from a narrative of oppression, oppression, you know, if, if we're teaching history and we've got to teach George Washington's teeth were you know made from slaves or teaching history and we've got to be like that person did, the, you know, and, and always point out the oppressor oppressed narrative. Then again, we get to the students who I care so much about. I care so much about getting this right, where they're just like, 
well, F the system, you know, F this world. Why is it, it's not even worth preserving. Burn the system down because it's, it's always, you know, I'm always going to be in that role. That's what I worry just, about. And you just gave an explanation as to why that doesn't happen. Why? Because, because yeah. that's a reality. When, when you, when you, and, and that, and Black America has been saying that for decades. F the system. Mm-hmm. You heard it in hip hop back in, in the early 80s, <laughs> right? And, and you've heard it ever since. You've heard it back in, 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 in music, pop music back then, right? It, it, like, that's a reflection of the frustration of knowing that full arc of the, of the story mm-hmm. and having and being gaslit when you're ta- when you bring it up. Like, when you bring up your individual in, incident of, 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 of racism and then tie it to something systemic, oh, that you're you're making a big deal out of. It's not that, it's not racism. Why are you always pulling the race card, right? That was always the retort when 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 those things were brought up, but but that's been the reality that Black America has seen. And so you're right. The reality is, as everyone learns that real history, we've part of that arc of better understanding very well may end up being burning it down and starting from scratch. But right. it, it's a process. I think even Isabel Wilkerson, right, would say, if I remember cast right, I mean the the structure is like you don't burn down the house, right? I mean, you still, or did I, maybe I misunderstood her, but I believe, and that's one of the things that I liked about that book was, you know, I think that people who are talking, I think that there's good things worth preserving and burning down the house. And that's where I get fear is when we're teaching only from that angle, then pe- then, then of course people are like, burn down the house because you're not seeing anything worth preserving. But but here's the, here's the beauty of this beautiful thing that has been built by our founders. We have the amendment process, and we can utilize that to improve the thing without burning it down. And so we don't need to recreate the wheel. We need to just go back and do the work and and look at the political division that is masked as you know our country, you know, red versus blue and all that kind of stuff. Like there's division is always going to happen, but. The fact that those that that body of Congress can't get things done is a problem. Like that, that that's a problem. And then it's like, oh, so why do you have to make it political? Well, the problem with with being black in America is is your humanity is politicized. Mm-hmm. You don't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, teach me the whole stuff. You know what? I wish they would have taught me about Nat Turner when I was in school. Right. That's supposed to be the bad story of black folks. Oh, rebellion, blah, blah, blah. Shoot. That there's a reason I didn't know that. Mm. Right. Like, had I known that there, there might have been some some lessons that I've learned that would, would have taken from that and then applied on my argument with the administration at my school. And something might, you know, like mm-hmm. I was accused of being a militant leader anyway. My friends used to joke after after uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie came out. Mm-hmm. They're like, "You changed after that, James. You changed." <laughs> <laughs> you just said something that I I wrote down because I thought it was really important. And we don't agree on on everything, which is love. Like I love that because I love having real conversations. But this is something that really struck me: your humanity is politicized, and I I. That's absolutely, that hit home. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that that's real. I mean, like, okay, so so folks want to make memes and make jokes and talk about this whole, you know, Chris Rock, Will Smith, 
slap at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. But like, that's another example of humanity being politicized, right? That like, that's that like alopecia. That's a pain. Like I've known people that have lived with that. And there's a shame that goes with the whole hair thing, let alone, I've only known men who had alopecia. I have not known women who openly have shared that they have alopecia. And so I know that there's a different connection there with women in their hair. So there's like, that's a thing that is real pain that is essentially being politicized, right? And, and for how many people, people who actually experience that in their real lives, like how are they feeling right now about their, like a pain that they can closely connect to being so politicized. Well, that's what happens on a daily basis with black folks, right? Where you see hashtags of, you know, oh, George Floyd and like, you know, I can only imagine how the Floyd family feels now when they go anywhere and have to tell people, oh, excuse me, what's your name? Floyd. Oh, oh, are you, you know what I mean? Like that's, that, that's been politicized. Your humanity has been politicized. And those are just some, some, some accessible examples, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I hope that you and I can um, have this conversation more frequently because yeah. I just, it's, it's so, it's so fun for me to be able to like have someone to talk to, but also, and, and, and talk, speak in good faith, even, you know, uh, across differences, but then to model that too, because I, I really, I think that again, people are afraid to, to, to question and, and, and learn yeah. from our, from yeah. our differences. You know, I can't wait for when I'll send you a copy of, of the book, and then maybe we can have a discussion around that too. I would love to get Happy your feedback and your, and your, um, but even before then, I mean, there's, I, I think I'm leaving a lot on the table. I want to be conscious of, of, of our time, but there's so much more I'd love to well, discuss if you're open. And that, that, you know, for, for your listeners, that's why I'm available for bookings, right? Because yes. these conversations like, yeah, we can have this here, but so suppose you want to have this within like mm -hmm. a group of moms have a book club and they're like, you know what? We Well, put your money together because I value my time. I, I, I understand my work, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that there needs to be an exchange of value there and doing your work beforehand. But these conversations have to happen. And, you know, I want to know more about what we don't agree on because like I, I genuinely, being a reporter really has given me the understanding and the perspective to be able to say for most anything that happens, I can understand where other people are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, and that's what the beauty of being Black in America gives you kind of that perspective, right? But, you know, it, it's a thing that, that, that should be shared, those who are willing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, for me, it, I care so much about getting it right. That's, that's, that's my thing. So, you know, that's for sure. I mean, I think we found plenty of common ground, but, you know, for me, it's just the, it's the praxis of, of how we, how we do it that matters. And it takes moral courage. Yeah. <laughs> right back to that. You're shot in mind. Yeah. I have to, you know, I work yeah. with her. I got to plug that, but, but speaking of plugging, so why don't you tell our audience how to find you so that if they want to book you and, and have their own coffee with a black guy. It's cwabg.com, coffeewithablackguy.com. 
Yep. And on the website, there is all the resources. Yep. So, you know, kind of gives you a snapshot of what the movement is and what we've been up to. Some uh, got a YouTube channel that's got plenty of yep. you know, previous conversations. And so there's accessible free content out there. Um, but there's nothing like a consuming content and, in, you know, and engaging in an interactive experience there are two totally different things. Totally different um, things. And so, yeah, you can go to the website and, and, and you know, reach out to me uh, via uh, the email option there, engage on social media. I'm on all the platforms, well, not all the platforms, but uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. S-C-W-A-B-G? Um, on, on Facebook and Instagram. And I think on Instagram or on Twitter, we are Coffee W Black Guy. Um, okay. At Coffee W Black Guy. Okay. Um, and so, um, you know, can reach out and, and engage there. Uh, but, you know, really enjoy having these conversations. They're tough. Um, it's emotional labor. Um, I bring my authentic self and encourage everyone who comes of any diverse background to, to bring their authentic selves to the conversation as well um, and just unpack it. And that means sometimes you're not going to get it right. Sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But the idea is as community, we work through that wrong as well. Mm -hmm. um and 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 we, we figure it out together yeah and it's so much i mean it's it's a constant process right i oh, mean yeah. it doesn't stop with one conversation keep there's a hashtag i like to use keep the conversation going mm -hmm. right because, because it, it's a it's a it's a continual and it's creating in order to have those conversations too we have to create that trust and that trust is only created through engagement so yeah and some ground rules, you know, some some basic rules of engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the reality of it is when I'm kind of taking it back to the root and history of this, um, as I started doing research after I started Coffee with the Black Guy, I did the research, how did, you know, what's the history of coffee? And I found out that it, it, mm -hmm. it originated from the Ethiopian, Somali, Northeastern uh, uh, mm -hmm. African region. And um, that it, it started because, well, Long story short, the berries fell, the goat herders saw that their goats would act differently when they would eat the berries, as the legend goes. And then they realized that there's some power in these berries. They started to you know, uh, brew them and grind them. And then there was this ritual that was built around this coffee that was brewed from these beans, right? And that ritual became a thing. And then that thing, when you talk about rules of engagement, so as tribes were, were in the area were you know conflicting with one another their leaders would come together have coffee discuss how can we avoid this is there you know can we talk about this first uh, instead of going to war uh -huh. and if we have to go to war what are the rules of engagement right uh -huh. and that was all done over a coffee conversation and you see that same process replicated today in the middle east as our troops would go in and meet with the tribal leaders they have tea mm -hmm. same ritual same exact ritual, but why are we trying to act like we don't have the blueprint to solve these problems? We do it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the blueprint is is engagement, and, and I, I hear you with ground rules too. Uh, but but that's not where we're. I mean, we we've that that genuine engagement has dropped off. So yeah, I appreciate yeah, yeah. And, what you're. And, and, and for, for Coffee with the Black Guy, the, the basic ground rules, and, and I'm pulling out my handy dandy Coffee with the nice. Black Guy notebook. Uh -huh. Also on the webpage, we have merch. So like the shirt, the uh -huh. hat, 
the mugs, all the that mug. stuff. It, it helps facilitate the conversation, right? As you're on your DEI journey in your place of work and you have to keep notes, keep it in one of these things. And then as you're at the coffee shop reading through your notes, uh, someone might ask you, coffee with the black guy, what's that? No matter who you are, it's gonna start a conversation. Uh, but at, when I'm talking about rules of engagement for coffee with the black guy, it's quite basic. Uh, be respectful, mm. be genuine, mm. be willing to listen. Mm -hmm. An important one, be willing to feel something mm. and don't seek to dominate with your story, which means you're sharing and you're listening, right? And mm. so um, those are some, like, it, it's not rocket science. You know, we're, we're just having authentic conversation uh, and and. Again, the, there's models out there about doing it. We just need to lean into that uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, thank you for leaning in with me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes to see what each of us is reading. Different news with different views. You can find us at holdmydrinkpodcast.com, all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. Or subscribe on Substack at truthinbetween.substack.com so you never miss an issue. If you want to join our Discord community, drop us a line. And until next week, may your conversations be constructive and your divisions diminished. Cheers. Cheers.